0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, right, let's t- uh, lots uh, to talk about in Ontario politics. Uh, Ford promising a tax credit for minimum wage earners. The NDP launching their platform yesterday to talk about all of this. Let's bring in Peter Grafe, uh, of course, political science professor at McMaster University and is with us now. Peter, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. All right, let's start with uh, Doug Ford promising tax credit for uh, minimum wage earners. I guess the opposition is saying they don't pay any tax anyway. Is this going to resonate?
1: Well, I mean, I guess uh, Doug Ford's in a tough spot in that the minimum wage increase is popular, but uh, the Conservatives uh, don't really want the wages to go up further. So this is a way to try and uh, to deal with it. But it is a difficult one because in most cases, uh, probably a minimum wage earner will be less well off. So... I guess the question is, what do the other parties make of it? Uh, you know, are they able to uh, frame it in a way that really makes it look like he thinks minimum wage earners aren't smart enough to understand what leaves them better off? Uh, or you know, do they give him a pass on it?
0: Is it, well, I'm going to uh, freeze this minimum wage now at where it is, as opposed to another jump come uh, next January, and this will alleviate the pain a bit? Or is he selling this as, look, you look what you've got now?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think it is this, uh, you know, that he doesn't want it to go up the extra buck. Uh, and so he knows that if he uh, puts that out there, it's a grand opening for uh, the Liberals in particular to point out that the Conservatives didn't raise the minimum wage, uh, you know, a single time between '95 and 2002 when they were in power. And this idea that ultimately, you know, you're not worth a buck more. Um, so, I mean, he has to come up with something to compensate on that. And I think he figures most people would think that, uh you know, not paying taxes would leave them further ahead. Without thinking that, uh, you know, actually, if you're if you're earning extra buck an hour, that's actually a fairly big hole to fill. If at least if you're working full time, in terms of the size of that tax cut. So I think you know he he doesn't want it to go up, and so he had to offer something. Uh, Or otherwise, uh, the opposition parties would really be pointing out, well, you know, does the Conservative Party actually think you're worth a a raise when you're working at the minimum wage?
0: We remember what a debate this was when uh, the last minimum minimum wage increase kicked in. When the second one kicks in, do, do you anticipate as much discussion about this? Will it be as big an issue?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I think for two reasons. On the one hand, we've tr- sort of talked it out. But on the other hand, uh, you know, one of the arguments in the business community was that they could hack the minimum wage increase, but they needed time to prepare for it. And in comparison to the one that kicked in uh, at the beginning of this year, where they had really just a couple of months where, the you know, the government had laid its cards on the table, you know, this one they've seen coming for a year. And uh, they've also been able to figure out... Well, how do you communicate with uh, your, you know, your clients and people who come and buy your services and goods about why prices might be going up, or, you know, how you have a discussion around that? So, uh, I think in that way, the the next increase, I mean, there'll always be uh, some moaning around it, but uh, I think, uh, you know, we'd expect less. In many ways, uh, you know, the debate's been had about this, and now people are figuring out you know what to make of it i mean likewise uh, you know we'll we'll be having uh, studies i'm sure for years about what was its impact on employment and so forth uh, but at the very least, the sky hasn't fallen in the few months we've had it. Uh, you know, there may be a negative impact. There may be a positive one, but it's not, you know, so huge
0: that it's changed our lives. Hmm. How do you think Ontarians or how do you think voters will react to what, what Doug Ford is selling in regard to not uh, holding the minimum wage at w- where it is? Uh, will that resonate? Uh, will that be positive? Will it be negative? Does it, it pit those making minimum wage against everyone else?
1: Well, I mean, I think in the short term it relies on people not really knowing where their money's coming and going and what you know what taxes they're paying or not paying to uh, to work. And so, you know, I think it'll have an impact if the opposition parties are able to frame it up, right? That you know, they, I mean, I think the the numbers are fairly clear that if you're working, uh, you know, full year, you know, that's uh, an extra buck an hour is like, you know, how many hours do you work in a mm-hmm. year? You know, fifteen, sixteen hundred bucks, and you're only getting eight hundred bucks back, maybe in terms of not paying taxes. Well. There's a hole in your pocket, so if the if the opposition can frame it up that way, I mean you could make Doug Ford, who wants to be the fan of the little guy the the sort of the, the champion of the little guy, say well actually he 's counting on the little guy, uh, you know fooling him <laughs> ultimately at the end mm-hmm. of the day, so it could be politically uh powerful against him, but uh, that would take effort because uh, again, I think most people don 't have a sense well what would what would be the difference in terms of uh, my income. Uh, and my tax is paid with this plan. It gets technical
0: very quickly. Uh, is he going places where he shouldn't go, or is this just him releasing his platform as he goes? Uh, I think many have just, said it's his election to lose.
1: Uh, well, it is his election to lose. Uh, but uh, you know whether this plays well or not, it's hard. To, it's hard to say. I mean, I think ultimately he doesn't want an increase in the minimum wage, but he uh, knows enough to know that the, the popularity of that he has to offer some kind of offset. And it changes the discussion, or at least he hopes to change the channel to one around taxes, where I think he figures uh, people are going to rally to him and it gives him a chance to portray himself, you know, even as he's, in a way you could say, even as he's taking money out of your pocket, he's, you know, your fan, uh, he's your champion because he's cutting taxes. So uh, I think part of it, too, is an attempt to pivot the election, you know, independent of the specifics of the policies to the, the themes and words where people are likely to look favorably on him.
0: All right, let's talk about the NDP platform. And, you know, you have to feel sorry for the NDP because, it, it, you know, you feel that a lot of this is the presents have already been opened under the tree and then, uh, I guess, retaped shut in many cases, uh, as the Liberals have uh, taken a lot of the, the steam out of this. Um, I, I'm reading from their documents now. A drug and dental coverage for everyone, ending hallway medicine and long wait times, fixing long-term care, uh, cutting hydro bills by 30%. Uh, relieving student debt, uh, easing the household crisis, uh, protecting middle class families. There's that magic phrase again. Uh, by having the wealthiest and most most profitable corporations pay their share. So that means people earning uh, less than $220,000 will see no tax or fee increases. Those above will see a one point uh, increase. Those above three hundred thousand have a two point uh, luxury tax added to vehicles to cause that cost more than ninety thousand dollars. Is is this going to resonate? Is this going to pay for what Andrew Horbath is proposing?
1: Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, the left always wants to make an argument that uh, here's the programs we want, and if people say they want them, then maybe they'll eventually decide that they're willing to pay for them. Um, I mean, I think there is a way in which if, you know, you say we want to have nice things and do it publicly rather than privately, at a certain point you have to pay higher taxes. And so I think the way that the NDP manages to get around uh, this and, you know, in this platform is to offer relatively threadbare, uh, you know, start startups on some of these programs like, uh, you know, the, the ones that they promise. You know, in the longer run, if we wanted to really have, say, long-term care to help us look after aging parents and so forth, Chances are, you know, there'd be uh, a greater tax effort, uh, and certainly, it, it's nice to say we're going to tax high-income earners. To actually find a way to squeeze that money out of them, rather than have it go into tax havens and so on, again, is a complicated task. But generally, I mean, I think the NDP, with this platform, has set themselves up to say, uh, you know, we're the party that's going to, uh, you know, push in terms of a number of these social policies. Uh, we're going to do it in a you know relatively uh, threadbare manner to start, uh, and so it's not going to actually have a short-term impact on taxes, and is not really going to push uh, the provincial uh, deficit picture out of the range where we saw with this latest Liberal budget.
0: So how do they sell this against the Liberals? Uh, the Liberals, you know, m- many have said NDP light. They've got a lighter version of of what we've just talked about here. So what's the difference in these two parties?
1: Well, I mean, that's a good question about, you know, where the difference is. I mean, the, you know, wh- what's promised and what's delivered, I guess. Uh, you know We don't really have much of a, a recent example of uh, the Ontario NDP governing to, to know what the distance is between what's promised and what's delivered. We maybe have a better idea with the Liberals. Uh, but, I mean, I think ultimately the NDP strategy, if they want to be successful, can't be to win some kind of s- sweepstakes to see you know, who promises more between them and the Liberals. Exactly. Uh, I mean, there's very few seats where, uh, you know, the NDP could find, uh, you know, could pick up with that sort of program. So I think what this uh, platform is really about is trying to neutralize uh, the first phase of the Liberal campaign, which will be to say, well, the NDP doesn't stand for the old values that it used to. And if you want a real change, you have to vote for the Liberals. I think this platform does enough to say no, we're covering much the same ground, but now here's a difference. Do you want to trust Kathleen Wynne or do you want to trust uh, Andrea Horvath? Do you want the government that's been there for 15 years and is getting a bit complacent and uh, self-serving, or do you want a fresh pair of hands uh, and ones that you know won't re- require the same size of change in the way things are done in Ontario that uh, Doug Ford represents? So I think that's really the job of this platform, to avoid what we saw, I think, in 2015, uh, 2014, I guess, it was a, a difficult campaign for the NDP, where we saw, uh, you know, some of their supporters in Toronto writing, you know, letters about how there was a complete a betrayal of the NDP tradition and so forth. Uh, I think this this platform is set up to try and be a way of neutralizing that kind of uh, a form of politics, and also presumably to mobilize their members to say, well, yeah, this is, looks like the NDP, so we'll be happy to go out and. Uh, Knock on your door, Scott. <laughs> so on mm-hmm. a few weeks to, to to push it. So I, I suspect that's the, the the strategy in this.
0: Maybe I'm looking at this from a centrist, but it seems that if 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 Ontario's unhappy with the Liberals, wouldn't what what does the NDP have to offer to say that, that that's a better solution? Especially when we're having problems confusing or you know identifying the two, differentiating between the two. Um, w- what's the quality that Andrea Horbath, other than saying, well, we can give you all this, but do it right. I mean, you, you know, again, everybody loves a grocery list. Everybody loves all of this that, that both parties are talking about. What it comes down to is fiscal responsibility. That, I think, you know, is what people think has been lacking with the current government. Has the NDP convinced us that won't happen in, under this government? You'll still get all the toys, but you'll have fiscal responsibility.
1: Well, yeah, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to uh, deliver on that. I mean, I suspect they're looking at uh, Doug Ford, who likewise seems to be saying he's happy to run deficits so he can pay for a tax cut. Uh, And so you can kind of say, well, maybe that's not going to be the ballot question. Uh, The ballot question might be, you know, do you want a fresh pair of hands rather than ones that have been there too long and and grown complacent uh, in that context? Uh, I mean, there's also an attempt in this to uh, try and... Put forward a set of parameters around what's promised in a manner that tries to limit the exposure uh, to cost, and will probably come at some you know criticism to them in in the sort of sweepstakes with the liberals. So, for instance, uh, you know in the childcare plan that's proposed, whereas uh, we had Kathleen Wynne saying free for everyone uh, from two and a half to four years of age, you know this this plan you know reaches down lower, but there'll be you know parental payments, you know for families earning more than forty grand a year up to like twelve bucks a day. You know, Again, it's, uh, it's a way to limit the cost on the books, uh, you know, maybe also a way to say, well, we have to think about the different benefits to parents and so forth. But again, I think there's been some thought in the crafting of this platform, if only to be able to promise a variety of, of, of different things to, to bring in programs where you know, they've, they've been constrained in various ways to keep their costs down.
0: Uh, Also, obviously, electricity, uh, an issue with this uh, current government. Uh, Andrew Horbath says the NDP have committed to put it back into public hands at being Hydro One. Uh, Other changes include scrapping the mandatory time of use billing and uh, uh, ending unfair delivery charges. 30%. That's a huge reduction. Can you do that and buy it back?
1: Well, I'm not an energy policy expert, but I'm skeptical of any poli- uh, any party who thinks that there's kind of quick or big fixes available on this file in terms of bringing prices down or changing these long-term contracts. Uh, again, because there's always a cost involved to making these changes. There's probably some savings that can be made in different ways. I mean, there may be reasons why it's good not to follow, you know, Kathleen Wynne's latest move to, like, lower our costs today by pushing the price into tomorrow, you know, if having to pay it back. I mean, so that, you know, there's a variety of things where around the edges you can chip away. But to to think that uh, there's a magic wand that can be waved, I think, is is a bit wishful thinking. I mean, on the part of the NDP here, but, you know, we see similar promises across the spectrum where, you know, in a system with high sunk costs, uh, you know, with uh, technological profiles that you can't change, you know, in the five or ten year time horizon, to think that there's big savings anywhere is a bit, uh, again, it's wishful thinking.
0: Uh, the Ford camp just announced, or just sent out a um, a press release. As we're chatting, Doug Ford will call in an outside audit of Kathleen Wynne's reckless spending. Uh, he said this in Brockville today. Uh, we're going to be, uh, we're going to restore responsibility, accountability, and trust in government. He said. For me, nothing is more important than the straight and straight talk and keeping your word. I want to have the whole truth about what's going on. Uh, and it says like on the first day uh, that he'll. Uh, go after and try to, you know, put some report together on, on on what's going on. What will it be like for any government who replaces this one? Will we hear for the first six months, oh, my God, it's worse than we thought?
1: Yeah, I mean, every government says that. Yeah. <laughs> they get in <coughs> and make claims about how the numbers are all... You know, it buys them uh, some space to figure out how to, you know, pay for things that they've promised. But how do we
0: account? How do we account for that now? Especially considering we're punting things off to the next uh, decade or two. I mean, uh, and there's there's been chatter of creative financing for the last couple of years. Do you think there's anything out of the normal, out of the ordinary here that we're going to see?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, we have an Auditor General that, uh, you know, does audits of departments on an annual basis, uh, looks over the books. We have, you know, external, I mean, so there's, uh, I mean, there's obviously always things which, uh, you know, you may have questions about. But uh, I think if we sit on the outside and think that, you know, these, uh, these things are, you know, fundamentally being poorly run, we're probably, you know, missing... Uh, you know we 're not giving the credit where the credit is due, say mm-hmm. to the auditor and I mean, we saw this in Toronto when Rob Ford became mayor. The idea that there was a gravy train, and then they hired at great expense so, you know some private auditors from k p m g who came and looked through it, and they really didn 't find a whole lot of fat to slice unless fat was having libraries that were open uh, at hours where people used them uh you know and a number of other you know essentially saying like well, maybe we didn 't need these public services, and yet you know the public said, actually we like them so um yeah I don't I don't think there's you know huge sums of money lying behind the cushions there that are going to pay for a 20% ca- tax cut. Um you know there any government can make you know raise a question well is this really a priority for the public anymore or should we cut this uh you know and, and make those decisions but that's different than saying that you have a government that's wasteful it's more a question of the public making choices about what they want to do together through uh, paying taxes and having programs and what they want to do privately. Um, So, you know, I think sometimes we tend to confuse the two and call things waste when in fact, uh, you know, maybe they're the result of choices about what we want to do.
0: Peter Grape has been with us, Professor of Political Science McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. All right. uh, We've been talking uh, for the last several days in regard to what is happening uh, with the uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline, the Trans Mountain pipeline, taking, uh, of course, uh, bitumen from Edmonton down into uh, southern British Columbia in order for it to get to Tidewater uh, and ship to various places. Obviously, the prime minister has uh, said it's going through. It's going through. Nevertheless, uh... bc says no it's not no it's not no it's not Uh, ended in uh... a meeting on the weekend where the prime minister came back from uh... an overseas summit to basically get the two in a room and and try to make peace in the sandbox basically said the prime minister that it will go through and that they were going to provide financial reassurances to kinder morgan to make sure that it does go through uh... that being said now it's Death by uh, delay, legalities, more legalities. And uh, it appears that now each province, certainly Alberta, getting ready to cut off energy to, or certainly slow down the, the, the supply of gas going into bc which is already incredibly expensive and you know i I said earlier this is bizarre because uh i lived out west for a period of time and bc and alberta love each other people travel back and forth all the time skiing what have you uh enjoying the areas uh business uh, and, and I find it just bizarre that these two provinces are going at it toe-to-toe and they've both got NDP governments. I want to read you something that a listener uh, sent to me, uh, Andrew sent to me, and it's from the proprietor of the uh, of a winery in the Okanagan Valley. Ex nihilo, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, vineyards of, of the Okanagan Valley. And Dakoa uh, Harder, the pripor- uh, proprietor, writes this note to the Prime Minister and the Premier of British Columbia. Uh, and I'll try to get through this as quickly as I can. This past weekend, hockey has proven that we truly love each other throughout this great country. It has taken a horrible, tragic accident on a way to our national treasured pastime to remind us all that provincial borders do not stop us from being one united country. My husband and I were born in Alberta. We have chosen to pursue our dream in British Columbia in the Okanagan Valley wine industry. First and foremost, we are Canadian. We started our winery meaning out of nothing, literally out of nothing. We have put in endless hours, sweat and tears into our vineyards, into our dream. We fought through several economic hardships, poor economies, floods, fires. We are Canadian. We take good care of our staff. We work with them to pursue their gre- their dreams and goals. We are Canadian. We take pride in our lands. We work with the winemakers and vineyard managers with the latest technology to be environmentally conscious as possible. We are Canadian. We raise three boys who all have a love of hockey. We are Canadian. Why are my Canadian customers that I have worked so incredibly hard to have, threatening to never buy my product again, and she points to an email below. Did I do something wrong? Did I send them wine they didn't like? Did they have a bad experience at our winery? No, they are angry at our government. Their anger is threatening my existence and my future. We do not need, sorry, we do need fuel for our tractors. We do need fuel to deliver our wine. We do need fuel to drive our boys to hockey. I understand the fear that environmentalists have spread, but until we change how we Live, until all of Canada changes how it lives, we will still have the need for fuel. And unless I have been lied to, my research has confirmed that the safest way to transport fuel is through pipeline. Other sources of energy will take time and investment. Government and private enterprise can invest towards producing greener energy, but we need to prosper now in order to have the funds to make those changes for our future. Please work together as Canadians to find a solution. Sincerely, Dakota Harder, proprietor, uh, winery in the Okanagan Valley. That's the part I don't get. I don't get BCers and Albertans fighting each other. And all over extreme politics? Are Albertans and BCers going to let this happen over extreme politics? Well, they continue to export coal. Uh, Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Consumer Affairs Critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com to find out more. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me here again, uh, Scott.
0: So, uh, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I want to keep everybody informed as to what's going on. Obviously, over the weekend, uh, an announcement was made that uh, the prime minister would, and Alberta would provide funds to guarantee that uh, the shareholders should not uh, be concerned about what is going on with instability and getting this pipeline built. That being said, uh, Alberta, or sorry, BC says it's going to continue on with this battle. Let's start with what can each province do. What can BC do? What can Alberta do?
2: Well, B.C. can try to hold this thing up in the courts. It knows full well. I think uh, its environment minister uh, has admitted as much uh, before its own B.C. legislative committees. Uh, This is really an attempt to try to slow things down and uh, under the ruse of saying we're going to do a little bit more to ensure that uh, everything that we need, uh, all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed as far as uh, uh, safety is concerned. But that's already in the bills that's already in the approved process, one of the 157 conditions. Let's put it this way, there's a greater likelihood of a spill uh, by BC ferries carrying and churning around millions of litres of diesel because they are not uh, assisted by tugs or whatever the case may be to ensure that they don't collide or spill uh, than uh, vessels uh, that would uh, come into this area. Uh, BC is also approving uh, what amounts to uh, an additional 30% increase in its uh, shipping further south uh, for other products so it you know it's kind of strange that this is sort of the uh, the one that they're choosing but be as it may if uh, bc believes it can uh, you know legislator legalize or use the courts to stop the kinder morgan there are two problems for the federal government one its authority is absolute and it is uh, appearing as if it is uh, it is being played by the province of british columbia who, uh, surprise, surprise, had Quebec uh, join in uh, to try to make this somehow an environmental issue, which is, of course, joint jurisdiction. Uh, again, um, it's it's really miscreancy in its worst form, because what we're really trying to do here is emphasize green environment versus something as clean as a pipeline with one of the most uh, rigorous uh, oversights and safeguards anywhere in the world. But uh, the federal government also realized that if Kinder Morgan loses uh, this battle of, getting its product built, getting its pipeline, its expansion built, uh, there's likely to be a NAFTA challenge in which case the Canadian public is going to have to suffer uh, what could very well be a several billion dollar hit. So he has every reason to want to get this together. It's also sending a signal to the rest of the world that Canada is a pretty shady place to, uh, to, uh, to invest because chances are once you get an environmental protest and the B.C. government behind it, which is really hanging by a thread, run around by the Green Party, three tiny little seats, Uh, you're likely to lose your investment. So it it is not a good situation for the federal government. The optics are lousy. Uh, And Alberta is basically saying, look, if we're going to get hit, we're going to mitigate that hit. And the collateral damage will be not just us here in Alberta, You folks in B.C. who think this is not going to affect you at all and you can go and protest or pay no attention to the protests are also going to be affected. And it, it will be very painful on British Columbia, dare I say, far more than Alberta.
0: So does the Prime Minister have to wait while B.C. goes through these legal delays? You know,
2: Scott, at the beginning of February, I did a story with the National Post with uh, Tristan Hopper. I knew this was going to happen, and I suggested this was the remedies that the province of Alberta had. Uh, Ottawa didn't clue in until, you know, what, two and a half months later. Um, It it kept sort of dragging its feet and hoping and, you know, thinking this thing would somehow resolve itself. It hasn't. And now we're at, uh, you know, we're 44 days away from Kinder Morgan, either being satiated by the federal government saying, hey, we'll safeguard, we'll backstop any potential economic fallout. We'll look after your your, your shareholders because we didn't uh, clue in quickly enough. Uh, it's a little, little, it's almost too late. Uh, I'm glad the prime minister is finally taking it seriously, but I'm also concerned that the delay has worked very well into the hands of the green movement in this country, which is really zero focused uh, uh, laser focused on destroying Canada's energy industry, bar none. Um, so when it comes to this thing, uh, maybe the prime minister now realizes he may be in for several billion dollars hit to his budget uh, and to the national finances that we can't necessarily as a country afford, and certainly not in an environment where our number one export, oil, uh, is getting hit uh, with depreciation, which in turn is uh, leading to uh, further exits of investments in Canada, which really is undermining our country as a whole.
0: So, B.C. threatening to sue Alberta uh, because they, they say it's un, un, unconstitutional for them to shut off the gas, so sort to of speak. Where does that go?
2: Well, I mean, B.C. can take these things in the court all that it wants. The fact is it's already happened. Alberta has extra, extraordinary precedents in terms of what it did to Ontario in 1981 when the National Insurance Program was, uh, was, in, was, was put in place by the federal government of the day in order to uh, shift... Uh, oil, um, the, the oil industry from the west back to the east. Uh, would moved to dial back about 15% of crude production. Gasoline prices back then rose about 8, 10 cents a liter. Back in those days, it was about 34, 35 cents a liter going to 44, 45. It really did have an impact. Everybody noticed the three governments, Alberta, the federal government, and Ontario, got together and seemed to have uh, worked out some kind of a deal. I think in this circumstance, though, uh, no, one's, no one is going to blink. And if no one's going to blink, the federal government can you know, move all the legislation that it wants. It's not going to go back to the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, I think uh, very smart people sitting on the bench, the nine justices wearing ermine are going to look at the federal government and say, why are you refer- referencing a matter to the Supreme Court of Canada when you have absolute jurisdiction over pipelines? So uh, BC's gambit uh, you know, really uh, enshrined in an idea that somehow it's protecting the coast. Uh, is uh, is about stopping this pipeline, and Alberta saying, "You stop it, we stop you." And unfortunately, that's not the way anybody wants this to come out. But at the end of the day, uh, Alberta is basically saying, "Look, um, we're not sending you down any more gasoline. Sixty-five percent of all of Vancouver's gasoline comes from that pipeline. So does the jet fuel to run your uh, your international airport in Vancouver. So does your mining, forestry, and agriculture industries. So if you're going to hurt us." Uh, we're going to send our heavy bitumen down the existing pipeline. Get rid of the gasoline. You don't have to send it by rail if you can get it down there any way you can figure it out. Mm. And uh, we're going to we're going to mitigate the uh, the, the effect. We're not going to get five hundred ninety thousand barrels of heavy oil, but we might be able to get three hundred thousand. Uh, that's a way of. Uh, you know, mm. protecting our industries.
0: So uh, BC Prem- the B.C. premier, uh, as you mentioned, being propped up by by three green seats, he's between a rock and a hard place. He can do nothing else here because if he lets this thing go through, his government will be toppled. Uh, is there any advantage to him? Does he have enough support to, uh, uh, to go there? Does he want to go there? Is he tired of well, this? I is, is, is he letting other people force the hand? No, he,
2: he's in total denial. I mean, uh, when, the, when, the, when a fellow comes out to me and trots out one of his silly economists to tell me that a guy has been in the business for 25 years that uh, expanding a pipeline, uh, the existing one, by another 50,000 barrels to allow more gasoline won't mean a, a lowering of gas prices. You have to be from another planet. And frankly, he doesn't want to know. So there's only one way in which this is going to be resolved, and that's that the public in B.C. is going to have to face and confront half of their gas stations being out of fuel, half of the airplanes not being able to fuel up, half of the vessels going over to Vancouver Island and back in ferries being without fuel and uh, paying $2 plus a litre. That will probably start to get some of the folks in B.C., unfortunately, who have really no uh, issue with uh, what's going on and are not really paying attention to finally wake up and demand uh, perhaps the resignation of several members of the B.C. legislature, which would then cause a provincial election, and I think the outcome would be very clear uh, the NDP and the Greens would be tossed. Is
0: the is the Alberta government going to turn off the tap before the PM does anything more? And when will that happen? When will uh, BC
2: start I, to feel it? I mean, I think Alberta saying, this is what we can, this is what we will do. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, if BC thinks it can, you know, uh, court its way out of this uh, by going to the law uh, and, and somehow try to figure out some kind of a strategy, that'll take months before a court even hears it. So ironic that... Uh, The court is being used by bc to try to slow down the kinder morgan well alberta will use the same strategy even if it didn't have a leg stand on by the time a court figures it out the damage will be done and this will be something that all folks in bc are going to have to confront so it's time that everybody in british columbia uh, start to pay more attention to this issue and declare where they stand for or against do they want the shenanigans to go on Uh, do they want uh, their economy to come to a you know a standstill or do they want to side with uh, something that's safe and has a great track record and for which the rest of the world wants, our heavy oil. Um, and at the same time, for us not in Alberta or not involved with the resources sector, I just want to remind everyone here in Ontario, there's 1,600 companies who depend on the, uh, the viability of our oil sands. There's $4 billion in investments every year in the province of Ontario. These are not something that you can sneeze at. I mean, we have, a, what, an $800 billion economy. 4% still winds up being a significant amount of our economy, and uh, 4 billion, rather, is still a big part of our economy. And uh, what uh, we're in it together. I mean, if oil prices start to tank for Canadian products, it uh, will drive the Canadian dollar south, which will mean higher prices for all of our commodities, not just energy, but food.
0: If the PM decides uh, he's going to go forward with this, no matter you know what the, the legal delays are, we're, we've made the decision, Kinder Morgan's on board, they've got their check, let's rock, everybody's moving forward, The protests will start. How big will these protests be, especially specifically in and around Indigenous groups? The Prime Minister says he's got 43 signed up, 33 in British Columbia, yet we're constantly hearing on the news that they're not behind it.
2: Yeah, well, that's baloney, and it's a a really twisted uh, version of uh, media playing games. Uh, And whoever's doing the reporting is being very selective. Every uh, every, uh, reserve along that pipeline has signed on. Uh, Every... Uh, group in, uh, of our first Nations has supported this, knows that there are very significant positive economic outcomes for them, understands because the existing pipeline is already there. Yeah. And, there's been 1953. Yeah. and this is this is absolute absurdity by the green left movement in this country that's really out to vandalize the Canadian economy and couldn't give a you know a, a, a pooch's uh, noodle uh, for uh, our indigenous first Nations people. Uh, they use them when it's convenient to do so. But I don't, you know, I wouldn't expect that people who have foreign funding coming from outside trying to rewrite what's happening in Canada to really care much about our First Nations. This pipeline is good for the country. It's certainly good for First Nations, especially those who are directly affected by this.
0: So, what happens now?
2: 44 days. Talk.
0: <laughs> is that what it is? Is that is, is because apparently they've, you know, Trudeau's moving forward. So whether, you know, Kinder, Kinder Morgan's not going to say anything uh, publicly until this is signed, sealed, and delivered, will that happen before the 31st of May? Well, I mean, if, uh, if he's committed now? I mean, the Prime Minister said he's committed over the weekend.
2: Yeah, he said he's got his finance minister negotiating with Kinder Morgan. So now we, we take a share in a pipeline. Um, but frankly, this is ridiculous. It's exposing all of Canadians to something because a fringe group of people are doing their utmost to try to really you know, bend the laws and uh, you know, suggest that somehow building this is going to be tantamount uh, to uh, uh, the world ending. Uh, it, nothing could be, of course, further from the truth. And the hyperbole aside, uh, this should have been a no-brainer. Uh, but only in Canada will we allow a very small fringe group of people. I, you know, I think the, the, the courts in B.C. have it right even except the Attorney General, who of course is a political minister, um, the courts are saying put uh, put uh, criminal tests to these people. Throw them in jail. They are criminals. These are not civil tests. These are criminal tests. Um, my sense is that uh, I think calmer and cooler heads will prevail. I hope that is the case. Uh, remember, I'm not, from, I'm not from Alberta. I'm not from BC. I've never lived out there. Um, but I see the fact that this is leading to uh, an outcome in which there can be very few uh, pleasant conclusions. Uh, you, talked wine- about, you, you talked
0: about you talked about the vocal minority here, the fringe group. I, I just read the note from the from the uh, winemaker in the Okanagan, originally from Alberta. Uh, when are those people going to speak up? When are the when is the average Joe? Or does the average Joe agree with all of this?
2: Well, I think the average Joe hasn't been canvassed. I think the average Joe hasn't been sought out by you know the the. Uh, uh, those uh, uh part of the elite media that likes to suggest that there's only one issue here i, I i'd be really blunt about this Scott. i was a little ticked off at uh, the cbc vancouver back about a month ago when i said the effect of this pipeline being built would be to lower prices and the evidence was there uh, clearly it is about expanding gasoline being sent cheaper gasoline from edmonton down to hard-pressed vancouver and rather than bringing me on the station to defend what i had said which was accepted in most other media and was very defensible with uh, with what the proposal was and what was agreed to they simply scoffed it off and uh, wanted one side you you have people who are required to be journals of record coming out and taking positions notwithstanding the facts and that's where we're at a lot of people who i think understand this issue are very much behind it as the winemaker in uh, uh in the okanagan uh have no you know real agenda But they're not allowed to speak because, uh, frankly, their position doesn't count. You either have to be with them or you are completely against uh, the climate, which is ridiculous and preposterous. But that's where our narrative in this country has gone. We've allowed one side to dictate what the country and where the country is going. And as a result, it's driving the country into the ground. And I think a lot of Canadians are starting to get fed up with this.
0: Dan McTague has been with us, former Liberal MP, Consumer, Fair, Consumer Affairs critic, and analyst, GasBuddy.com. As always, Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Boston Marathon. Just treacherous running conditions yesterday. A steady 40K an hour headwind, icy rain. Uh, these conditions didn't stop a Canadian runner An Olympian named Krista Duchesne from Strathroy, Ontario. Krista finished third in the women's race uh, at this year's Boston uh, Marathon, coming in at 2.39.54. To talk more about all of this, uh, Krista Duchesne is with us, Olympian, marathon mom, registered dietitian, and, of course, uh, came in third at the Boston Marathon uh, with the women and is on the line now. Krista, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, thanks. Nice to be with you. So, you, uh, the quote that you said in here was something along the lines of, on a good day, I could have never have beaten these women. Explain that.
3: Well, the Boston Marathon assembled an incredibly um, talented women's field. We had Edna Kimbicca returning as last year's champion, Shalane Flanagan, who just won the New York City Marathon, Deslind and Molly Huddle, you name it, a list of the world's best. And... Um, Given the conditions, it wasn't the best day for them, but it was the best day for me. And uh, aside from Des and Sarah, I, you know, was victorious and successful. So on a good day with, with the weather being ideal or even maybe a little bit less than ideal, not tremendously terrible, they would have beat me. That's for sure.
0: So talk about the weather. Talk about that played into your how it played into your favour.
3: Well, I live in Canada, and so Mm. we know what our winters are like, and we've had kind of a a long, dreary, cold, wet, rainy spring, so going to Boston, um, that weather didn't concern me. In fact, it was something that I kind of had planned in my head mentally to be possibly a, a technique for me to be successful, so I always intended to go there strong. I wasn't necessarily trained to be fast, but I wanted to tackle those hills that start at about 25K, so you know, you really need to be mentally prepared to handle the whole distance, 42.2 kilometers. So started at a good pace. The lead group I was with for a little bit, let them go, and then um, basically just ran my race, took in my um, fueling and my hydration, and um, plugged away one kilometer at a time. And then basically the race unfolded so quickly in the end that I, I was in disbelief when I finished that I actually finished
0: third. So uh, marathon runners and and you said the same thing, same thing, run my race, you just you, you try to zone out, do your own thing. Uh, and, and but when you entered this race, what was your goal? What was your accomplishment? I mean, normally it's to beat times, to finish between here and there. What was your goal entering this race?
3: Right. In the last couple of years, I kind of felt like I was a slave to my watch because so much was dependent on time and pacing per kilometer in order to make standards, and improve fitness for the Olympics and to qualify for the Olympics. So uh, with my new coach, Dave Scott Thomas and Guoff, I was really glad to learn more about running by feel and how your body responds. So it was perfect for a race like this where you might as well just throw your watch away because it's not going to give you any useful information. So that was really beneficial to me. And I was training to be strong and smart and handle those hills, but not necessarily be fast. So on a day like yesterday, I wasn't necessarily as fit or fast as them, but because of the conditions... I was able to persevere and, you know, come out with a third place finish.
0: So in in a day like it was yesterday, uh, time or watching times would only get you down because of the conditions dragging it down, so you stay away from it. Is that the idea behind it?
3: Right. I mean, it's not even a record eligible course just because it's a point-to-point. So even if you ran your fastest time, it wouldn't really be acknowledged. And, And that's kind of the benefit to doing a race like this. You're going by placing. There's no pacers. The women start on their own so it's it's got a different feel to it more like a, a championship race as opposed to a race for time and world records so that's something that really appealed to me um, just kind of more for that freedom and just you know hitting those hills and seeing how you can handle them so it, it was nice to have that change and to not worry if if you're not the fastest that day then that didn't matter because it clearly was not about speed.
0: So did you feel more relaxed going into this race as a result? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: It was, uh, I had my husband with me on the weekend, and, you know, we really enjoyed our time there with Reed and Eric. And um, you, you went know, to have me. fun. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, it was really a special weekend because my husband and I, I raced it 13 years ago, and it was definitely much more different this time than then. Why? Well, um, 13 years ago, we had a puppy, and then I ran the race, and we had three kids, and now Mm -hmm. I went back, and our kids are now age 12, 10, and 7, and the dog's still kicking around, so a lot's happened since then, and I mean, this time, I started with the John Hancock Elite Program, and you know, they treat you like royalty, it's amazing the care that they give you. 13 years ago, I started with the mass group, and I was 51st woman, this time I was third, so just a really incredibly different experience but definitely the same incredible atmosphere of the boston marathon that you would expect
0: um when did you realize where you were placing in this race
3: yeah i write for i run magazine and you can read it there where i kind of go through that but basically uh i I forget at one point in the race i thought okay top 15 would be really good and then I, you know, passed a few people and then I thought I was kind of on my own and most of the elites were ahead. So it's kind of a no man's zone and just kind of finishing the race. And then two um kind of unknown American women passed me and I was like, oh, wow, where'd they come from? So I thought, well, OK, I've got a bit more to give. And then I saw them kind of kind of fist pumping at this point. We only had a few more K to go. And I was like, why are they celebrating? And then I started, we started passing the world's best that were expected to possibly get first in this race. So I passed Molly Huddle and Shalane Flanagan and several of the Africans. And then I realized, like, well, I didn't realize that it was just crazy how quickly this was happening because the, the lead mail was coming through. So with all of the motorcycles and the media truck and the crowd and the rain, and it was all so fast that I didn't know I was, I had no idea that I was third crossing the line. I had to ask, and I didn't believe it until I saw it in writing.
0: So from the time you crossed the line till you got confirmation, how long was that?
3: Honestly, I would say it was probably about 20 minutes until I would believe it. Really? It it really reminded me of when we had our third child, because we had two boys and a girl, and despite seeing her myself and asking the midwife and my husband, are you serious, this is a girl, it was kind of the same (laughs) thing. My husband came in, he didn't even know how I placed, and he was at the race. And I said, they're, they're telling me I got third, like it was some joke. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders like, I don't know. And I mean, I was kind of going into some shock. It was quite cold. I was shaky. So they were just concerned about my health at that one point. But then one of the agents that was there, I went over to him and I said, can I just can you just show me on your phone? I have to see it in writing to believe it. And he said, here it is. Mm. In fact, I asked someone, you know, when I was walking through, you get escorted back to the building, and I said, how did I place? He said, well, I think third or fourth. I said, no, no, not Masters. How did I place overall? And he said, yes, yeah, third or fourth. So wow. uh, definitely wow. exceeded my expectations.
0: <laughs> so what went through your mind when you realized that?
3: Oh, I mean, a shock, right? Because they I was physically you know, in some shock from yeah. the intensity of the race, and so they're trying to get your wet clothes off you and put you
0: yeah. with
3: um, nice, warm, dry towels, and you're trying to process everything, but because You know, typically in a marathon, it's a long event, so you can kind of pick off the people, count the numbers, and kind of know where you are, but because the ending was so crazy, where I basically passed, I think, six people in the last few K, Hmm. and then the male winner coming up all at the same time, like, if you watch the video, he's crossing the line, and I'm right behind him finishing third. Hmm. Um, It's just, uh, yeah, it was, I I started writing the blog or the, the column for the magazine saying, you know, imagine doing the Boston Marathon and finishing on the podium because the conditions are so poor for everyone else that it works for you. And then I lived it. <laughs>
0: uh, do, now that it's over and you play it, I'm sure you've played portions of it over in your head uh, a few times. Now that you go back and, and you take into consideration the the, the conditions and, and how you did get to where you are, what is your reaction to that? Would you do anything different?
3: Well, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, so I certainly know that you can train for a race and everything can go wrong. Um, In this case, my um, training was perfect. I was healthy and fit, and the way the race was, I didn't care about time anyways, so um, it was perfect for me. But um, I've also learned the hard way. When I did the World Championships in Russia in 2013, there was a heat wave, and I wasn't prepared for the heat, and I collapsed uh, one of 20, uh, 23 women that didn't finish the race that day. So I've been on that side where you're. I was the most fit I've ever been in my life running that race. So, you know, you learn from your experience, but, you know, yesterday could have been hot and humid. You just don't know what you're going to get in April. Yeah. So. I preferred the weather that it was as opposed to the heat and humidity. And a lot of people in Boston this morning were looking at, oh, today would have been a perfect day. And I thought,
0: no, yesterday was perfect for me. Uh, Considering, well, what do you, considering your different approach to this race, um, have you learned anything? Does this teach you anything about where your head should be going into the next one?
3: Well, this, this was my 15th marathon. Exactly. It's not new for you. You know, I'm, I'm pretty seasoned at it. I'm 41 years old. And the benefit to the marathon is that it's, it's, it's a big mental challenge, right? So um, because I've been doing it for so long, I really know how to channel that energy and the crowds are just incredible in Boston, but you can't let that overwhelm you. You know, if you start running fast when they're cheering you on and you slow down, that's difficult too. So, I think um, like every experience, you you look at what worked and you move forward with that. You continue to tweak it, but definitely um, my coaching with Dave doing, you know, marathon paced long runs and, you know, quality workouts got me to be very strong today and especially focusing on those hills at the end was a benefit for me. And then the added bonus was just our Canadian winters.
0: Hmm. Uh what did all the what did other racers or did anyone talk about this after the race, the conditions and, and and how it affected the outcome?
3: Oh, certainly. I mean, there were 40 elite athletes in the John Hancock program and I believe I heard that 23 of them dropped out. So, a lot hmm. of the Africans, I mean, this is just yeah. you know, shocking weather to them. And several of the Americans um it's, it's difficult to prepare for extreme conditions like heat and humidity and what we had yesterday with the wind, the rain, and the cold, all three factors at once. So I'd, I don't think that you can ever completely compare or uh, prepare for such tremendous conditions as this. So, I mean, if I were them, I would, you know, take it for what it was and learn from it, but you can't beat yourself up and, and have any regrets.
0: Uh, You talked uh, about inspiration and, and again, how this is such a head game, running something like this. Um, And and Humboldt came to your mind?
3: Yes. I know before I left, I had a few interviews, um, and that had come up about what had happened out in Saskatchewan. And, you know, I just, I, I really thought of them, and I think everyone across this country and so many people in the world have, you know, broken hearts for the people and, we have no idea what they've gone through, but, you know, we ache for them. So I just said, you know, even if they know that I'm thinking of them, maybe that can help them through one day so that they can, you know, move forward to the next and try to pick up the pieces and put it together again.
0: What's this day like for you? What's, what's marathon day like for a runner?
3: Well, again, because I've been doing it for so long, you go through your routine. It's, it's really quite relaxed. Um, you want to conserve your energy. And just Are you nervous? Stay off your feet. Um, I don't really get that nervous, to be honest. Um, you know, faith is, uh, my Christian faith is a big part for me, so I just believe that's, you know, what I'm here to do and kind of relax with it in that sense. But, you know, it's, it's like your job. You learn where you're going to execute the plan or you have some big performance or, or presentation to do that you You go with the thing that works for you in your routine, so I eat, you know, the same food pretty much, and you keep it simple is what you
0: do. And how does the family react to this, especially now doing this after you've had kids?
3: Well, again, this has been a process where they've always known mom as a runner, so I mean, they've seen the ugly days where I I broke my leg and returned from the hospital after um, I ran a race in Montreal, and, you know, they saw me come back from that, so they've seen the good, bad, and the ugly, and My husband and I will pick them up from school this afternoon so they'll be pretty excited and they got to go to Rio and watch me cross the line at the Olympics so... You know, they're definitely part of this, and we work together as a team, so there's times where they need to do a bit more to help Mom, and, and now this will be my off-season, so I'll be, you know, supporting them. And um, it's, it's about our faith in this family, so it's not just Mom and her running, but how we can be given God-given gifts and, and use that to the best of our ability um, for Him.
0: How does this inspire your kids, whether it's athletics or anything in life?
3: Well, both my husband and I grew up as athletes, and our parents were supportive, but didn't force it on us. And I think as a kid, it's very important to just enjoy being active and to enjoy sports. And I think especially with them seeing me as, as running with my profession, they look up to me. Um, but, you know, they don't need to do everything I'm doing because I'm at such a high level. But I'm starting to see them make choices based on the influence I've had. So they might not be interested in my spinach smoothie, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes they will add a leaf of spinach because mom does, and, and that's good. So... Yeah, they love they love sports, and my oldest is getting a bit more serious. But you just enjoy the process.
0: Uh, I think the key factor too, in, in what you've touched on with you and your family is just keeping active, doing something uh, you know something you can all do together, or certainly just keeping physically active. What message do you have for those? And I mean, you're certainly you know still a young person. Uh, that being said, there's lots who are in your age category that might be thinking of starting out and and starting to get back in shape. It's always easier for those that that have been in shape all along or, or have had the discipline all along. What advice do you have for those who may have, you know, even though you're a seasoned athlete, might be inspired by your story?
3: Well, I'm also a registered dietitian, so I work a lot with people who maybe need to lower their cholesterol or their blood sugars or are overweight. So I think it's really important just to set small goals and to have a slow and steady approach to change overnight don't try to change your diet or start running 10k tomorrow but you know maybe have a bit more vegetables with your dinner and walk for five minutes and then do a little bit more the next day because it's the slow and steady change that's going to be permanent and make long lasting changes as opposed to those quick fixes that just come and go and then you're on to the next one
0: how big is this in your in your accomplishments through your career
3: it's interesting. Someone asked me that yesterday in one of the interviews and I think this is probably, you know, one of the top four. Certainly when I made my Olympic standard 11 and a half months after breaking my leg was was a big uh, accomplishment, crossing the line at the Olympics and then the third one um, coming just behind Lanny Marchant when we broke the 28 year old Canadian marathon record. So I think Being third at Boston, I I think all four of them are up there. Just they're all so different, and I don't think I could choose between one of the four, but those are the top four.
0: Krista Duchesne, Olympian Marathon, mom-registered dietitian, came in third in the women's race at the Boston Marathon. Krista, congratulations. Good for you. Thank you. What's next?
3: Well, uh, rest and relaxation, (laughs) recovery. I'm going to go to Sweet's Bakery here in Brantford and get my favorite pecan square. And, you know, just enjoy it. I think that a lot of people jump into um, trying to accomplish another goal right away, but you need to savor the moment and just, you know, uh, enjoy and and smell the roses, so
0: to speak. Well said. Krista Duchesne, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.